Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but just can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Design BNB is looking for a senior project manager in Chicago, Illinois. iShares by BlackRock is looking for a user experience designer in New York City. And the Poetic Justice Group at MIT Media Lab is looking for a back-end developer with Python experience in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they're open to remote candidates. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Before we get into this week's interview, you already know it's our audience survey. Thank you so much again to those of you who have already taken the survey and have given us your feedback. Now, for those of you who haven't taken it yet, you know, we'd love to hear from you. We do this every May. It's a great way for us to hear directly from you about what you think about the show, about the guests, about this platform in general. We'd love to hear from you. The survey will be open until midnight on May 31st. So if you have a few minutes, please, we'd love your feedback. You can take the survey at revisionpath.com forward slash survey. There'll be a link to it also in the show notes. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Now, building your online brand has never been more important. And as someone who searches for a lot of designers, you would be surprised how many of y'all have no website at all. You've got a Twitter profile, you've got an Instagram, maybe you've got a Behance, but no actual website. Uh, Having your own website is a great place to showcase your work in a way that is uniquely you. And it's yours because if you have it on some social media platform, they can take your stuff down at any given point in time. And then what? At least if you've got your own website, you know that's exactly where your work is. And this is where Hover comes in. Let's say you use a site builder like Squarespace or Wix or something like that. Hover has this feature called Hover Connect that allows you to connect your domain name directly to your website with just a few simple clicks. I haven't used it on my personal website and it was a total breeze. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. We'll put a link to it also in the show notes. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with human-centered researcher, strategist, and designer, Dr. Kenya Odor, founder and managing partner of Lean Geeks. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, Maurice. I am Dr. Kenya Odor, and I am a human-centered strategist, researcher, and designer. What's on your mind? Like, how's 2022 been treating you? What's on my mind? So I think there's a lot going on right now in terms of 
coming out on the other end of COVID and understanding what that means to the work that my team and I do with our clients and, you know, how much of this remote model will change to a more Mm -hmm. hybrid or in-person model again. I think in looking at some of the work that we do for our clients, I think there's a huge opportunity for those conversations to shift to what new expectations do users, customers, clients have around their products and services. So I'm really curious, not only to see what that means in terms of work opportunities, but also what kind of insights do we gain from the work that we do in that regard. I'm also finding that my career is gravitating towards more focused on me being a Black woman. And I guess 10 years, 15 years ago, I would have never imagined that my identity would matter so much to the trajectory of opportunities and the voice that I present out to the world and that sort of thing. That's interesting. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. So I never forgot who I was just because in the industry <laughs> that I'm in, the industry that I'm in, I might be the only or have been the only woman in the room, the only black person in the room or both. And so it's always been a constant reminder for me because at certain points in my career, I didn't necessarily feel like I was an integral part of the organization in terms of feeling like I'm a fit within the culture because of my differences, or I didn't feel like I was necessarily heard as much as some of my peers were. But what I'm finding now is that all of that experience and all of that maybe insecurity, imposter syndrome, or angst that I was feeling throughout my career, I feel like that's all coming to a place where I'm now using it to tell my story. And it's becoming what I never realized would be a story that a lot of people, Black, white, or otherwise, want to hear in terms of just we all have our unique differences and knowing that and embracing those differences and and using that to your advantage in terms of, especially in the design realm, mm-hmm. using that to your advantage in terms of bringing a different perspective. I'm curious if like that change has happened since the summer of 2020, because I feel like for a lot of mm-hmm. Black folks who I've had on the show, well, all the Black folks, I've, I've only had Black folks on the show. Let me be clear about that. <laughs> but okay. like, I think every person I've had on has said like, since that summer, yeah. there's been a shift Absolutely. I am more comfortable in the skin that I'm in. And I am unapologetic about, and I've heard that in a lot of circles that I'm in, being unapologetically Black and just recognizing that if you're uncomfortable with my identity and who I am, then that's not my problem. That's yours. I don't have to work to make you feel more comfortable. I have to be me and recognize that. And especially as a business owner, I recognize that clients that want to do business with me and my company have to be comfortable with, you know, who I am and that sort of thing. Speaking of your business, let's talk about Lean Geeks. This is your design agency. Where did that name come from? (laughs) So the name came from as a, as a researcher by training and coming from like the academic world and, you know, having a PhD in human subject research and and that sort of thing, I I recognized that throughout my career, a lot of times I would get the kind of poo-poo to ideas of let's go and validate stuff. I would get a lot of resistance where the immediate response that people would go to is it's going to take too long. You know, Mm -hmm. it's going to be too complex. 
We don't have time for that. We didn't bake in that, you know, that time to do those kind of things. So I recognize that being able to position research around being lean research and scrappy where necessary is really, really important in terms of getting buy-in. And the geek part comes from just as human factors professionals, you know, I'm not the only one that subscribes to this, but what I found is a lot of my colleagues, we always have swap stories about whenever we take on a project, we have to go really deep in understanding a new domain or a new type of industry and user within that industry. And so we almost kind of geek out in the things that we, we learn about medicine or what we learn about different industries that might be very different than what we would play in otherwise, banking and that kind of thing. So it's always interesting to think about all of those different industries and how you have to go deep in order to be effective in creating solutions or redesigns for services, you know, in those different fields. Now, your agency offers both consulting and staffing services to clients, and you have what you call a human-centered approach. Tell me about your process. Absolutely. So the ideal, let me tell you about the ideal, because this is what really excites me. When we have a client come to us and they're in this phase of discovery where they have certain assumptions or certain hypotheses around what they could do or what their product could do differently. And so having the opportunity to help define and execute on some research that validates their ideas, we usually provide them with more clarity on essentially what are the requirements for their solution. And so having the opportunity to do that and informing the experience design and having data to support our design approach is really, really, to me, really exciting because it's not one of those things where you or I on the team are going off of what we think is the right experience or approach. We're using some of our experience to understand what is the best design, but we're more so using data to validate the person's ability to get something done. Okay. And in those types of projects, we help our client get to the point of sprint zero or basically giving them the different assets that are necessary to feed development and the the engineering effort. And the really ideal experience is when they then allow us to partner with them from a contractor perspective and having maybe an interaction designer or a strategist join their team as a contractor. So then there's continuity from the work that we did. Mm. So it's not as if we're just throwing research and wireframes over the fence. We're actually continuing on with their team. And that allows those individuals that did the research to stay connected to the project and help to, to still continue and inform the direction that things go in. And for me, if every project started and kind of continued in that fashion, my life would be golden at that point, if, if that was the model that we could always follow. I mean, to that end, it sort of sounds like the best types of clients then for you to have are ones that possibly would have you all on retainer, because it sounds like the work that you're doing continues along a timeline, like you're not just going in doing one thing, and then that's the end of the project. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I wish we were on retainer. Typically, it's the upfront research and the deliverables around requirements, priority, wireframes. All of that stuff is usually time boxed, and it's a fixed cost effort. 
over my career, I think as a being in a practitioner role and in a leadership role, I've gotten really good at being able to estimate like how long an effort should take. Mm-hmm. So those are usually time boxed. And then when you talk about the contractors, those are typically like your standard, you know, contractor on your team, somebody that's there six months and then they're converted to a full timer or they're on the project for two years as a contractor. So those are typically, um, you know, someone who has a badge and a computer from your company and they submit timesheets to our company and we pay payroll and that sort of thing, benefits and all that sort of thing. That sounds like that's where the lean part kind of kicks in, at least in terms of mm-hmm. being able to estimate the time pretty, pretty accurately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The one thing that that I've not necessarily learned, but has become really clear over the last few years is that in any project, recruitment is the longest pole in the tent. That's going to be the hardest part of a project. And it's going to take the longest is to recruit panelists to use for interviews, qualitative interviews, or to observe or to have them do usability testing and that sort of thing. Recruitment is probably the hardest part of what we do. Hmm. What does like an average day look like for you with Lean Geeks? It typically, like most other people, you know, getting up and checking your emails and kind of what do I need to do today? It's engaging with, I don't want to say prospects because I don't look at engagement with potential clients. I don't look at them as prospects. I kind of want to get the opportunity to talk to them. You know, like, let me hear about what's going on in your organization. What are your biggest struggles? What keeps you up at night? So having or scheduling conversations with with um, different people is a, a lot of what I do. I am focused on business development and closing the sale. So I'm not so much doing the research work anymore or the design work per se, but I try to bring in those projects and I stay involved from the extent of kind of knowing what's going on. So that might also be a part of my day is kind of checking in with the team to see how are things progressing? You know, show me where you are. Maybe I have ideas or questions that help you to expand what your thinking is around a particular problem. So I also spend a portion of my day doing that. And I've had to get comfortable over the last year or more comfortable with marketing. So just thinking about strategically, what is my brand and what is my voice and what do I want to put out there? And this goes back to my identity becoming so much more of what I present to the world where historically that wasn't necessarily something that I put as much importance Hmm. um, in or on. Now, for those out there who may not have heard of human-centered design. Again, we talked about how you have this human-centered approach. Can you talk about what it is and why it's important? Absolutely. So human-centered design is essentially, I don't want to say putting the human first, it's informing your approach to a solution with information around your user and their motivation, their needs, what are their goals, in terms of interacting with your product or service. And most importantly, the most important part is context. And I I teach a human computer interaction class and my students are software engineering students. And whenever they ask questions, I always get them to unpack their understanding of the context because context really, really impacts our ability to, to assume What is someone thinking in a particular moment? What are the environmental factors that are outside of their control that they have to consider in using your product? 
when you think about your product, what features or capabilities need to be in the forefront because of that context. So that to me is what human-centered design is all about, is allowing someone or giving someone the tools that they need to get something done and to consider their motivation and their context in that. What would you like to really accomplish with your business this year? I really want to get to a place where obviously closing more business, any business owner wants to continue to grow. So I always want to continue to grow in my business. I want to get connected to more designers and researchers that are in a freelance situation because I'm always looking for talent. And as you know, right now, the market is really hot. So either Mm -hmm. we've lost team members or we're constantly looking for new ones. And I think I do a pretty good job of spotting talent, but in most cases, they're already either fully committed or not available or whatever it might be at that particular time. So that's a a huge goal of mine in 2022 is to build up our network in that regard and across the country, ideally. I have some little pet projects that I'm working on with colleagues, and I would love to see some of those pet projects shape up a little bit more and for us to move from idea to concept. Nice. Let's kind of, you know, switch gears here a little bit because I want to get more into your background and learn more about really how you came about all of this. So let's let's start from the beginning here. Talk to me about where you grew up. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When I was really young, before I started school, we moved to Queens, New York. So I grew up in Queens, very different from Pittsburgh. And it was very different kind of going back and forth, you know, during the summers and holidays. And so I grew up around a lot of people who might have been first generation Americans. And it was, to me, I think that is kind of what shapes my belief that culture and context have so much to do with as inputs to any solution, because I just remember being around people that were so different, but had similar goals. You know, everybody wanted the best for their children. Everybody wanted to work hard and earn a living and that kind of thing. So I knew that there were, there was a common thread amongst the kind of culture of the people that I was around. But I knew that, you know, when I went into different people's homes, the way they did things and the languages and all those sorts of things were different. So I look back and, you know, when I talk to some of my friends growing up, we always talk about how unique our situation was. And we didn't realize it until now that we're adults in different living in different parts of the country. It's so interesting that that hindsight, like looking back and you don't think about it at the time when you're a kid, probably not even when you're a teenager or a young adult. But I find the older I get, like when I look back at how I grew up and how I like first got into tech and everything like that. It's abnormal for the time, I think, but I didn't even think about it because like essentially at the time when I was doing this stuff, it just all kind of felt like play. It just felt like toys Mm -hmm. that I was working with, not actual computers teaching myself a language, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's the, I think that's the beauty of, I'm the kind of parent that, oh, I want them to do the things they enjoy and double down on the ones that they're passionate about. But I, always have to tell myself that you have to also remind yourself and your kids that exposure to as many different things as possible really open your eyes to to things you didn't even know existed and like you were talking about you know the the things that you did with computers early on you would have never thought about the impact they would have on your career now and we as just we as 
as, as people have to always look beyond what we're comfortable with. Look at the beauty of art and how that translates into the beauty of what you can create. And, and it, you know, just being able to translate some of what we see and experience into the work that we do. Yeah. Did you have like a lot of exposure to like design or tech as you were growing up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my parents coming from a small or from small towns in and around Pittsburgh, their intention in moving to New York was to be around culture and that kind of thing. So my parents used to drag me to the theater when I was younger and I was always like, oh, we have to get dressed up and go to the theater. And I used to, you know, go to the Museum of Modern Art or Guggenheim Museum. And I used to always look at it like, such a chore because it was maybe different than what my friends were doing or my friends didn't go with me. But as an adult now, I'm like, oh my goodness. I thank them all the time because all of those different experiences and that exposure had so much to do with. My mother used to do art projects and she would get wood and carve it and then do stamping on fabric. And I look at all those experiences and say, you know, that creativity and just seeing different types of creativity they remind you that there's so much out there that can apply to what we see, what we do, what we experience. Mm -hmm. Now, when it was time for you to, uh, to go to college, you went to the university of Maryland. Tell me about what your time was like there. Um, too much fun. That's why, that's why I was on (laughs) five year plan. (laughs) I knew, I knew when I was in high school that I wanted to go away to college. Um, I didn't want to stay in New York, surprisingly, As much as New York is a wonderful place, it's exhausting. And I was talking to somebody else from New York the other day, and we were saying how until you leave New York, you don't realize how much life there is outside of New York because it takes so much out of you to do everything. Hmm. So I went to Maryland, and I struggled with figuring out what do I want to do or what do I want to be. I started out as an engineering major. Then I got interested in psychology and people and Then I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist. So I ended up um, having to do an extra year because I thought I was going to be a physical therapist and I had to do, you know, additional classes. But my time at Maryland was like my awakening to experience black culture more than when I was just going to see my family. Coming from Queens and then going to Maryland, I felt like my identity as a black woman, I was able to see other people like myself that I was actually around all the time and not just family that I'm going to see during a holiday. So that for me was really interesting and exciting. And I just knew at that point that I wanted, I used to get the, the, the itch to say that one day I was going to start a business, what that was going to be, who knows. Mm -hmm. But I used to say to myself that, you know, I wanted to create something one day. So I enjoyed Maryland, but obviously not enough to stay there because I'm in North Carolina now. (laughs) But um, yeah, I enjoyed my time at Maryland. One thing that I remember really kind of, again, another hindsight thing that I remember is just how many different types of black people I met at college. Like Mm -hmm. I'm from Mm -hmm. like the country country. Everybody is like either they're Southern, like you really kind of don't see Mm -hmm. other types of people unless it's maybe on television or something like that. And I remember being at at Morehouse here in Atlanta and Mm -hmm. like meeting Caribbean people for the first time that wasn't via Caribbean rhythms on BET, you know, (laughs) like, like actually meeting people from the Caribbean, meeting people from other parts of the country and stuff. And like realizing how much that really shaped, 
I mean, my black experience, but just like the diversity of what is considered the black experience, you know? It's true. So the difference, I think, I have a cousin, actually, a cousin by marriage who's from Atlanta, born and raised. And I just found out recently that he did not see non-black people until he went to college. And that blows my mind because for me, I, you know, you see Atlanta obviously as a, a metropolis or a metropolitan area. And I mm-hmm. think about the fact that to me, that's so fascinating in the sense that you had exposure, you know, you had the means and the capability to go to college and in your lived experience, you never saw people that were not black. That tells me that the upbringing and the community you had was one that helped you to get to where you, you know, you needed to be in order to get to that next level, which I love. And then I think about the flip side of it with my experience in growing up in Queens, I used to almost feel I was one of the few people that were not white, whose family had several generations that went back in terms of being in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I almost felt like I felt like the outsider because I was the one that was whose family had been, you know, slaves and to have that connection to this country, but to have no one else around you that has that connection to this country. I felt like the outsider. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think going to Maryland is where I experienced more of my people who were like me, descendants of slaves, you know, and so I could relate to them in a different way than I could my people in Queens. So you were enjoying your time at University of Maryland, like soaking in that that good black experience. (laughs) What was your early career like after you graduated? Like what was next for you? Yeah. So, you know, like I mentioned, I thought I was going to be a physical therapist. So I got a job even before I finished school. I got a job at a nonprofit that worked with special needs children as a physical therapy aide. And the place that I worked was in the hood in Southeast DC. And I'll never forget that that was probably my first immersive experience into seeing and experiencing I'm not going to say we all, but I have the experience of growing up and having family that lives in public housing or, you know, we had to eat government cheese and all that kind of stuff. I had to have that experience. But this was my first time really experiencing true poverty and seeing children who were probably in a situation that when they left school, they did not get food. They didn't get their diapers changed. They came to school the next day with the same diaper on. So that experience really opened my eyes to just the divide that existed Mm -hmm. in this country and the unfortunate result of real poverty that I'd never experienced, even if I was poor or with members. Mm -hmm. So it really, really became an emotional Not only was it hard to do therapy with special needs children who, you know, like born with fetal alcohol syndrome or vitamin K deficiency, things that you would think are preventable. But it was just the the emotional part of just seeing that even when they went home, there was no joy necessarily for some of them. That was hard. That was hard. So it made me revisit only wanting to be there, but also, you know, did I want to consider a different career? Hmm. 
Is that when you decided to go back to school after that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I would come home. I would come home from work in the evenings. And it's just so when I went to college, email just came out like the last semester before I graduated. So, you know, like me working on a computer was, you know, word processing and that kind of thing. And so the Internet was just starting to become popular when I would come home for me, at least it might have been for other people, but not for me. So I would come home from work and get on the Internet and start to kind of do my search and look at different fields. And then I found human factor psychology that way. And what about that, like appeal to you? Because I don't know if you remember me mentioning that I started out undergrad as an engineering major. So I was very interested in engineering. I was interested in designing things and creating things that would impact people in their lives. And I loved interacting with people. So human factors, psychology was the intersection of those things. And so you attended North Carolina State studying this Uh, This is where you got your master's and then eventually your Ph.D. in human factors, ergonomics slash experimental psychology. Yes. I remember from that time, whenever anyone talked about ergonomics, or at least maybe in the context that I heard it, it always was about like office furniture, like Mm -hmm. an ergonomic mouse, an ergonomic chair, an ergonomic desk. But of course, ergonomics is more than just that, correct? Mm-hmm. It is. And and it's funny because when I first came to North Carolina State, I thought that that was going to be more of my major and that my minor would involve psychology. But when I got here, I got to know more about the psychology program and I flipped it. And I was like, no, nah, I really I enjoy more of the experimental and cognitive psychology. And the physical is also a part of your context and your environment. So that was to a lesser extent Um, my areas of interest. And now prior to founding Lean Geeks, you know, I know that you worked for a long time at two companies, but you also kind of alluded that you've worked for other places as well. But you worked at IBM for seven years, which people know for big tech. And you worked at LexisNexis for eight years, which I know is a service that a lot of lawyers use, I believe, for like background checks and things like that. But with both of these Mm -hmm. work experiences, you were focusing on user experience. I'm not asking you to necessarily give the years, but I'm curious Mm -hmm. on like, during that time, how did you notice user experience in the design community? Was this something that a lot of people were latching onto? Or like, how Mm. did you see it at that time? So IBM was my first foray in the whole user experience, like true user experience realm in terms of I shouldn't say that. I I take that back because the definition of user experience for so many people is something different than what some of us know or understand it to be. When I started out, it was human-centered design. And this was in like uh, consulting and then IBM. And it started with discovery of kind of who's your user, what is their context and what is their like need or motivation. And so at that time, I think IBM was one of the companies that was in the forefront in terms of doing the work to constantly iterate and validate on ideas or concepts. And as time went on, what I saw was more of an evolution towards design, more of UX then being termed design or, you know, kind of focusing on design, less about the validation or the discovery aspect of things. 
probably midway in my career is when I started to see that I started to see people who would talk about stumbling into a career in UX or they might have been painters or people who did did visual arts or, you know, industrial design and, and that their interest. And of course, there were people earlier than that time. But in terms of my experiences in the software world, that's when I started to see more people coming from the more design community, more of the design community that were playing in the software space. Mm. But my early experiences were primarily people who were coming out of the human-centered design space. Interesting. How are Mm -hmm. those IBM and LexisNexis experiences, like how are they different from each other? Mm, I was just talking to someone earlier today, a student that is considering a transition into UX, and I was explaining to her that one environment was very structured and the other was very unstructured. And so when you talk about structured versus unstructured environments, it's what rigor do they have in place and how mature are they from a user experience perspective? You know, do they have the right people in the organization and do they have a design system and that kind of thing and a process? Do they have validation gates baked into their, you know, framework, those sorts of things. So one was very different than the other in that regard. And some people thrive better in one versus the other. But I realized in my career, I made an intentional decision to shift from one to the other. Hmm. Because I wanted to see and to build up my own toolkit of navigating two different environments. And I think that's helped me in the consulting world, because I'm able to kind of spot where an organization's mature is and how to interact with the people in the companies that we work with. And so what was the impetus behind you starting your own company? Like you've put in now 15 years in this industry working as a user experience professional with human-centered design research. What made you say, I'm going to start my own thing now? So it was like, it had been probably more than 15 years at that point. And I was saying to myself, I was getting that itch of wanting to spread my wings and go somewhere new. And I I explained it or I likened it one day to someone that every day I walked into the office, I felt like I was a caged bird that had to get in the cage. And then every day at the end of the day, I felt like I was stepping out of the cage. And so I felt like I was being constrained by the four walls of industry. And I didn't feel like part of that came from presenting ideas that didn't necessarily align in terms of not your job kind of thing, or we're not there yet, you know, that kind of thing. So it got frustrating. And I I said to myself, okay, I'm either going to move on to a new company and take on a similar type of role, my highest level of evangelism and hiring and all that kind of stuff and firing. And I said, well, do I want to do that? And do I want to, you know, go through that same sort of climbing the ladder? And honestly, I didn't want to. And I felt like, It had almost been 20 years at that point that I was doing this kind of work. And so I was like, you know what? It's time for me to spread my wings and try something new and take this show on the road. And I've built a pretty good network over those years. So why not tap into that network and see what happens? You stepped out on faith and here you are. I stepped out on faith. And I have to tell you that that statement right there is the only thing that has kept me going is is stepping out every day when you talk about my day-to-day every day is stepping out on faith and it's it's a faith walk and it's constantly 
reminding yourself that just because you don't know something today or it's an unknown or it's uncomfortable, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and, and always know that you have to do the work to figure stuff out, if, even if you don't know it today. Yeah. Who are some of the mentors that have helped you to kind of get to this place now in your career? I always had formal mentors when I was at places like IBM. I had, you know, kind of people who I leaned on who were able to kind of help guide me in that way. And, but as I got further into my career, I found that I didn't have as many mentors or the people that I sought out as mentors Mm -hmm. weren't necessarily either in my discipline or they just didn't have the bandwidth to take on additional mentors. I started to do a lot in terms of coaching and finding other resources. Interesting. I mean, I would imagine, you know, and I've talked about this with other kind of like PhD level people that I've had on the show is like, it's kind of lonely at the top. Once you get to that level of, of education yeah. and you get to that point in your career, you kind of look around and it's it's just you in a way. Yeah, yeah. And that's, it's interesting because like, I would see people and I would see people who were in a position of running their own company or who were in a certain type of leadership role. And I would look at them and say to myself, I aspire to be there. And what I found in a lot of cases was that, you know, they were, and it was no slight on, you know, their part in any way They would just say, I don't have the bandwidth to take on the responsibility of being a mentor. So I would get whatever opportunity I could to connect with them and then kind of figure out who do I want to be when I grow up? And what is that? What does that look like? And, and I think the part that's most important for anyone that's exploring that sort of thing is to always, always, always connect with people and ask questions and invest in yourself. That's something that I've recognized I have to do a lot of. Mm. What do you appreciate the most about your life right now? You know, when you meet people and they're like, oh, I hate my job or, oh, I'm so unhappy or my kids are stressing me out. I just have like life stressors. I'm, what I'm really happy about my life is that I'm fortunate to be in a situation where life is hard. <laughs> I work really hard, but the joy that my family and my career and my company, the joy that I get from those things mean so much to me. And I'm, I feel like I'm so fortunate, even if things are hard, so fortunate to have the ability to do these things at this point in my life and to not have the grumbling. Like whenever I work with colleagues or whenever I talk to colleagues or I work with a client, I, it's so refreshing to know that whatever drama I get pulled into for work projects, as soon as I hang up the phone, leave the meeting or whatever it is, I don't take any of it home. Like I used to when I worked in house what haven't you done yet that you want to do? Like it could be in life. It can be through your business. Mm -hmm. Like what's Mm -hmm. the dream project? So I definitely want to travel more (laughs) now, especially after COVID. I want to travel more, but more importantly, I have colleagues that I'm working on side projects with, and we've been talking about them. And some of them were, you know, things are starting to get off the ground, but I would really love to see some of those things come to pass in terms of us being able to to realize and to see things happen 
I always, I'm very much a visionary. So I put out there, you know, like if you have a vision board or they say do visualization of what you want to do or where you want to be. And I see myself creating something that is impactful. So, you know, just doing project work or engaging clients around project work is one facet of my interests. I also have ideas that I feel like I need to bring to life. Speaking of kind of this traveling, now you and I have both spoken on a couple of panels now. Are you starting to see mm-hmm. sort of a, a return to in-person events? Like you're getting invited to mm-hmm. speak out at any conferences? Yes. I have a speaking engagement next month in the Baltimore area. I have a few, I want to say late summer or early fall. So I do realize that things are starting to open up. I actually spoke on a panel recently. So I'm excited to see and to interact with people in person because I feel like the connections and and I had a conversation with someone that I met in person after meeting them over or talking to them over Zoom a number of times. You really don't get the value of connecting with someone the way that you do when you meet that individual in person first Mm -hmm. and then transition to virtual versus the other way around because it's like you make that connection with people face to face that you can't make over a screen. So I'm looking forward to that again. I just got my first in-person conference invite in a while. I just got it a couple of days ago. So it's I guess I'm, I'm sort of leaking it early by saying it on the podcast, but I'll be at Design mm-hmm. Thinkers in Toronto in October, which is cool because I've always wanted to visit Toronto and, and to now go and like do my first in-person conference thing really since, well, gosh, I think the last time I did one was in... Maybe 2019, I think. Probably 2019. Wow. wow. So it's time. It's t- yes, it's time. <laughs> I've done a ton of virtual things. So it's t- <laughs> it's mm-hmm. time to get back on the stage. So I'm excited about it, that. It's time. Yes. Well, I can tell you that since COVID, my whole dress and shoe game is different. So oh, really? I'm like all about. I'm all about comfort now. So I'm like, if you, <laughs> if you say I'm going to put on heels and all that. Forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) What advice would you give to anyone that's like been listening to all of this and they want to follow in your footsteps? What would you tell them? So I would tell them that don't ever look at any experience that you have as a waste of your time or that it's in vain. From the time I first moved, when I first moved to North Carolina and I was an administrative assistant in an engineering firm to jobs that I've had that have nothing to do with what I'm doing today. Each one of those experiences gave me a perspective on interacting with people, gave me a perspective on myself, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, where my strengths are. So every experience that you have in life and know that they all build upon one another, even if they're not in the same field. And always walk away from bad experiences with the ability to say, what did I learn from it? Especially when you work with people that get on your nerves or you can't stand, figure out what it is you can learn from that. And getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is another thing. The only way we grow is by going through some sort of change. And I found that You know, I can procrastinate on the things I don't want to be bothered with or do. But when I look back, sometimes I delayed the things that really were 
in my mind, overwhelming. But once I got into them, they weren't. So don't put off for tomorrow what you can do today. And know that you don't know if you can do something unless you try. Mm. That's the way I see it. What's the legacy that you want to leave behind? Like, like, where do you see yourself, say, in the next, mm. like, five years or so? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Mm. So in the next five years or so, I want, I realize in my whole marketing effort that, that honing in on my brand, my personal brand, is something that, I guess before I used to, I was always like the little young, skinny one in the in the crew every you know throughout my life. So I was always kind of quiet and in the background and the the observer. And so I never really thought that my brand or who I am or what I have to say was necessarily that impactful or important. But as I get older and I have platforms to do that, I realize, wow, I do have things to say that people are listening to. And so I think in the next five years, continuing to sharpen my brand and my voice are a big part of my focus and that I want to be able to use my my skills around being an idea generator, being a connector, um, helping people to progress ideas. I like to see others. I thrive by seeing others thrive. So being able to utilize that capability and everything that I do would be just the most awesome thing ever for me. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work online? That's a good question. So definitely connect on LinkedIn, Kenya Odor, PhD, last name is O-D-U-O-R. It is the most, I wish I would have kept my maiden name if I knew my last name was going to be so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Check out the web company website, leangeeks.net, L-E-A-N-G-E-E-K-S.net. And um, I think LinkedIn is the best place to start because from there, you can get to YouTube videos and you can get my contact information. And I just like to connect with people. And, and, you know, like I said, I'm trying to build up my network of folks, especially like us, designers and creators and researchers that look like us are important for me to connect with um, at this point in my career, especially those that I don't know now or yet. Yeah. Keep in touch. All right. Sounds good. Well, Dr. Kenya Odor, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. One, of course, I think just thank you for telling us about your story, but also about putting forth, you know, this kind of really powerful message about look at your experiences and see what you can gain out of them. I mean, my mom used to tell me when I was younger, especially early on in my career, before I started becoming a designer, like sometimes you have to do the things that you don't want to do so you can do the things that you want to do or something mm-hmm. like that. I might be screwing up Amen. that, that whole no, thing, but, but I get it, <laughs> but it's true. Like sometimes you have to kind of put the time in, you have to see what you can gain from those experiences and then use those to become a better person. And certainly I think from what you've shown in this interview, and then even with what you're doing through lean geeks, you're definitely making that happen. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Maurice and continued success to you as well. Big thanks to Dr. Kenya Odor, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Dr. Odor and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, 
a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and some fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Of course, you know we're having our audience survey. So if you haven't done that already, take our survey, revisionpath.com forward slash survey. But you can also hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become and the further we can extend our reach to talk to Black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.